0: We are in the Gospel of Mark. If you would uh, be pleased to open your Bibles there to chapter 6. You can navigate on your uh, tablet or phone as well. Mark chapter 6. If you'd like and you're online, you can go to transcript.calvaryhanford.com. You can follow the teaching there. Mark 6, verses 1 through 13, that's our text. The topic, Jesus sends the 12 out two by two... And tells them to shake off the dust under their feet anywhere they are not welcomed. The title of our message, In God We Dust. Let's have a word of prayer. (laughs) Father, thank you this morning for giving us a a place to gather, for drawing us to this place. And pray that we would have a sense, Lord, that we are here because you would like to have a conversation with us. You would like to reveal more of your love and your grace and your mercy so that we would leave this place filled with the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, rejoicing in the joy of your salvation purchased for us by Jesus Christ on the cross, filled with your Holy Spirit, able to be used of you to make a difference, to shine a light in a very dark world. Guide us through this text. May it speak to our hearts, Lord, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Who would you cast... To play the role of Jesus Christ in a movie. In the 2014 movie, The Son of God, Jesus is played by Portuguese actor Diogo Morgado, whose appearance has been compared to Brad Pitt or a young Marlon Brando. He inspired a Twitter hashtag, hashtag HotJesus. Jim Caviezel is the most recognizable Jesus in acting history. He played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ, obviously the most successful Christian movie of all time, number 27 all time among all domestic movies. Did you know that Christian Bale, Batman, played Jesus in the movie Mary, Mother of Jesus? Probably not. I hesitate to mention it, but... Will Farrell portrayed Jesus in the movie Superstar, although he was on screen only briefly. I know that from the internet. That's, that's right, brother. Preach it. Who would I cast to play Jesus? Well, if we're looking at an A-list actor, in his 30s, I would have cast Dustin Hoffman. He's Jewish, he's plain looking, and he's about the right height at five foot five inches tall. I know you don't like me to remind you of it, but Jewish men and Roman men, for that matter, in the first century, they were short by our standards. Five foot five, five foot six is about average. And so these pictures of Jesus at six foot one, uh, he would be a giant in those days. Uh, He would be unusually tall. The Bible says that he had nothing about him that we should desire him, that he was plain and uh, and ordinary looking. And so, uh, Dustin Hoffman in his prime in his thirties would have been a great cast, uh, for Jesus. Now the people of Nazareth, among whom Jesus grew up, they thought he was miscast in the role of their Messiah. Despite his extensive resume of works that gave solid evidence, he was the promised deliverer. They rejected Jesus We're told they were offended by him, and we'll see some of the reasons why they were. I want us to see something else that is brought out in the text as well. I want us to see Jesus in his unique relationship to God the Holy Spirit. The people of Nazareth will ask, where did this man get these things, referring to his wisdom and to his works? He got them from being filled with and being led by God the Holy Spirit. R.A. Torrey said this, I quote, Jesus Christ is the one perfect manifestation in history of the complete work of the Holy Spirit in a man. We want to see this complete work of the Holy Spirit manifested in Jesus because that same Holy Spirit is given to each of us as his followers. I'll organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, do you see what the Holy Spirit can do through a man? And number two, do you see what the Holy Spirit can do through you? Let's take a look at what the Holy Spirit can do through a man, meaning Jesus, in verses one through six. The headline read, Americans who foiled terrorist gunmen on Paris-bound train get heroes welcome with parade in their California hometown. I think it was the Sacramento Bee. It's the least that they could do to honor them for what they did to save lives. You'd think the Nazareth News would publish a story with the headline, Local man who foils legions of demons and heals multitudes gets heroes welcome with parade in hometown. But it didn't happen. Instead of claiming Jesus as their favorite son, Nazareth made several disclaimers and distanced themselves from Jesus. They didn't want to own him as being from their town. And so verse one, he went out from there and came to his own country And his disciples followed him. His own country is his hometown, Nazareth. Now, most people familiar with the few details given in the Bible about the early life of Jesus are aware of the fact that following the visit from the wise men, Joseph and Mary were warned to take Jesus to Egypt for safety because Herod was seeking his life. Herod ordered the murder of the children uh, and Jesus had to flee. Later, after Herod's death, Jesus' family departed Egypt and they ended up in Nazareth where they made their home, where Jesus grew up. It's hard to find solid facts about first century Nazareth, but one reliable source said this, Nazareth was a relatively isolated village in the time of Jesus with a population of less than 200 people. So this region where Jesus was in the Galilee, lots and lots of small villages of several hundred to maybe 1,000 or 2,000 people. Uh, and Nazareth, uh, one of the least villages among them with maybe a population of 200. And when the Sabbath had come, stop there for a moment. Jesus returned to Nazareth, and whatever day he arrived, we don't know, but it was before the Sabbath, nothing noteworthy happened until the Sabbath came. Everywhere Jesus went, he was thronged by people upon his arrival. Uh, In an age in which no one could text and there was no instant communication, somehow news traveled fast so that hundreds and thousands of people were always flocking to where Jesus was. Not so in Nazareth. It's mind-boggling. How could this miracle-working, demon-defeating, wisdom-wielding local boy be totally ignored by his own people? Well, you could ask that very same question today. Not only do we have the historical record, the evidence that Jesus did tremendous works and had a wisdom unsurpassed among men, but he also rose from the dead, which we know to be a fact of history. Men still ignore Jesus. They go about their business as if it didn't matter that the sinless son of God took their place on the cross so that they could receive the forgiveness of their sins and live forever in heaven. I mean, I don't know if you ever think about it that way, but everybody who's not a believer has the testimony of Jesus' mighty works and his resurrection available to them in the scriptures and elsewhere, personal testimonies, And yet they go about their business as if that was a small thing, this miracle-working, wonderful Savior. Verse 2, when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many, hearing him, were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? At the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus had gone into that synagogue in Nazareth And he read a passage from Isaiah that described the works that the Messiah would perform when he came. Stopping in mid-sentence, Jesus said of himself, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So he read about the Messiah and then he stopped and he said, today this scripture I just read is fulfilled in your hearing, meaning I am its fulfillment. It didn't go over very well. We read in the gospel of Luke, this is from Luke chapter four. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things were filled with wrath and they rose up and they thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff, passing through the midst of them. He went his way. Jesus had returned now to Nazareth, having performed those mighty works. His neighbors don't try to kill him this time, but they reject him just as resoundingly as they had before. They had, uh, they had to acknowledge the works themselves, and that is perhaps why they were less inclined to kill Jesus. When he first made the claim, it was just a wild claim that I'm the Messiah, I'm going to do these things, and Jesus had never done anything before in his life. And so they accused him of blasphemy in their hearts and wanted to kill him. Now, they still weren't recognizing him as the Messiah, but they couldn't deny the works. He wasn't claiming he'd perform them. He'd actually perform them. And so it kept their murderous intention in a holding pattern. Now, it sounds here like they're going to receive him as they praise the works that he's undeniably performed. So what was it that offended them? Well, several things are listed here. First of all, in verse three, it says, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. They had watched Jesus grow up from a boy until he was around 30 years old. During that time, he did no mighty works, but instead he worked as a simple carpenter. The insinuation here is that Jesus had no professional training for the things that he had done. He had no background. He didn't even qualify really as a rabbi. He had gone to no rabbinical schools. He didn't go to seminary, we would say today. You imagine that the Son of God, Savior of the world, didn't go to seminary. He was just a carpenter. They were offended by the thought that their Messiah could be so lowly, so normal, so average. Maybe even sub average. His extraordinary works were overshadowed by his sub ordinary life. It's odd in a sense that they would think that because the Old Testament is full of heroes that had no training, who came from ordinary circumstances. King David, whom they revered, through whom their Messiah was to come, started out his career as a young shepherd boy. He was anointed to be king while he was a young shepherd boy tending the sheep, his own family didn't think he was important enough to be at the anointing when Samuel the prophet came. And so it's interesting, though, the Jews could see this in the past, they couldn't see it in the present. You know what this tells me? No matter how many examples we have of God using ordinary people, we still look for and prefer formal education and training. We know all those stories. We know more of the stories than they did. And we glorify God through them, but come into the present, and everybody wants a professional, even in the spiritual realm. We get calls all the time for people looking for a referral to professional Christian counseling. And I always say the same thing. I say, well, we offer biblical counseling and discipleship. Oh yeah, we know, we attend, we love the teaching, but we need professional counseling. And we say, well, we have one outfit that we can recommend in Visalia that is totally Christian. And then after that, I don't know what people are telling people. Uh, and so it's very interesting, this penchant that we have. We're the first to say, oh, David was a shepherd boy. Jesus was a carpenter. We have on our car, the bumper sticker, my boss is a Jewish carpenter, you know, that kind of thing. And then we come into our own life and say, well, we need... Professional. Where did you go to seminary? Uh, you know, how much do you know? I need somebody who's really on top of this stuff. We're not looking for God's anointing as much as we look for man's appointing. It's a hard habit to break, but break it we must. You and I need the presence of God in a, let's say, since I brought it up, in a counseling situation. We need God to show up, not somebody's degree. We need the Lord's presence there because it is his anointing. He's the only one, the scripture says this, and, and it's true, he's the only one can discern between the soul and the spirit and really get to a person's heart in a life-changing way, in a regenerative way, in a way that will save a marriage, that will kill an addiction and, and put a person's life back in order. And from what I read in the scriptures, any ordinary Christian can be used to accomplish this kind of work if they find themselves in that position. Now, the next thing here we see is that they call Jesus the son of Mary. Don't pass over that too quickly. It's a rather mean insult. Men were always known as the sons of their father unless the father was unknown because the son was illegitimate. And so if you wanted to have a polite way of saying that Jesus was illegitimate, You would call him the son of Mary. The people of Nazareth did not believe in the virgin birth, not for a minute. They were offended by the thought that their Messiah had a significant moral stain on his name. How can you be the Messiah if we don't even know who your father is and you were born in this way? Now, we could point to the scriptures and see folks who were morally compromised, who were nevertheless used by God. That's almost a given. Rahab, the harlot, assisted the two Hebrew spies when they were being hunted in Jericho just before the children of Israel invaded the Holy Land. She found herself later in the physical line of the Messiah. And we rave about that. But again, it's one thing to look back on Rahab with wonder. It's another thing to be contemporary with her or someone like her and think highly of her. We, we tend to look down on folks that have moral compromise in their past. Evangelists often take liberties with a scripture from the book of Hebrews that says, Jesus saves to the uttermost. They like to say, he saves from the guttermost, meaning that no one is beyond his reach. No moral stain is too deep to be beyond the Lord's forgiveness. And that's true. Now, the citizens of Nazareth next listed Jesus' brothers by name and mentioned more than one sister. In Matthew's gospel, the word all used to qualify his sisters is a special word that can mean three or more. So we're not really sure how many sisters are intended here. At least two, maybe three, maybe more. Now, I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail, but the plain reading of this is that after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary had other children, at least six or seven. These were not children from a previous marriage of Joseph's because that would make them all older than Jesus, and there's no indication anywhere in the Gospels he was the least in his earthly family. In fact, the indication is that he was the oldest. There is no biblical basis for the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church or others that Mary remained a perpetual virgin, that she never had sexual relations with a man that's just a a fantasy that people make up to elevate Mary. And I'm not sure exactly why the Messiah having a slew of siblings would be offensive. Maybe one of them was like Jimmy Carter's brother, Billy. (laughs) Remember Billy Carter? Some of you are old enough to know. He was known for embarrassing public behavior and for Billy beer. He marketed his own beer. He was kind of a, a Southern drunk, as I recall, who did all kinds of crazy stuff and, brought a kind of bad name to the White House, and uh, maybe that was it. They would be offended by the thought that their Messiah was crazy. And you might remember that a few verses earlier, chapter or so earlier, Jesus' family had come seeking him to try to bring him home because they thought he was crazy. And so the mention of his family would bring this up. This is kind of like saying, Hey, Jesus, he's got no credentials. He's just a carpenter. He's got this tremendous moral stain on his life because he was born illegitimately. And his own family thinks he's crazy. We don't care what he's doing. This can't be the Messiah. Lots of Bible characters had families that held him in contempt. Joseph. Was there ever a worse set of brothers than Joseph's? Now, albeit Joseph should have kept his mouth shut, if you have a dream that you're the greatest among your family, keep that to yourself. (laughs) Don't go telling your older brothers they're gonna bow down to you and don't tell your mom and dad they are unless you're in the Bible and that's the way it pans out. His brothers tried to kill him at first and then they finally, to be merciful, instead only sold him into slavery. And yet, Joseph, uh, of course, great hero of the Old Testament, Verse four, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. This must have been a proverbial saying. Uh, This is nothing new because your family and friends typically know the real you. And that's why when you're doing background checks, law enforcement will talk to anyone and everyone they can find who has any knowledge of you. Neighbors, uh, you know, people that drive down your street, the paper boy, uh, clerks, anybody who can say, that guy, that guy is an idiot. Because you can fool people, uh, you know, certain people or certain people have a stake in it, but other people, they'll just tell the truth about you and they can let them know what's going on. Now, in Jesus' case, there were no negatives. There were no faults to find. But it didn't stop the people from finding fault and making things up as we've just seen. Let me say that that ought to be an encouragement to you. People can find fault with your walk with the Lord, even when there is no fault to find. Are you one of those people who thinks there's a grain of truth in every criticism? Why would there be? In every criticism? That's not necessarily true. Now, we are prone to have blinders on. If everybody you know comes to you and says the same thing to you, wow, you're an idiot. Maybe you're an idiot. You have to deal with that. But sometimes people are just mean, and they say things that aren't true, and you need to be able to stand up under that kind of scrutiny and say, well, that's just not true. That doesn't usually go over very well, but uh, sometimes the criticism isn't true. So don't, don't take any unnecessary hits. Verse five, now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. God wanted to do a mighty work through Jesus in Nazareth. The people didn't come out for it. God showed up, but the people were a no-show. Do you know someone who needs God to do a mighty work? Maybe they're struggling with some addiction or their marriage is about ready to fail, things like that. You and I know that God wants to do a mighty work for them and we know that because he's done a mighty work for us in areas like that. More and more people are coming by the church office during the week looking for help. We try to help them as much as we can. We interview them with as much time as we can invest in all of that. One of the things I always like to say to them, or ask them, is if they attend church anywhere, and if their own church is helping them, and that kind of thing. And for the most part, they're not going to church, and and I invite them to church. And I say, look, the, the it's not a condition of our helping you. Uh, I'm not saying if you come we'll do this, or if you don't come we won't. I said, but separate from whether we help you or not, you need to be introduced to Jesus Christ. And you need to be around Christians because guess what? You'll get to know people and meet people who will love you with the love of Jesus Christ and they will start miraculously meeting your needs or your needs will just kind of dry up. It's an amazing thing when you're part of a family of believers. Oh yeah, that sounds great. How about that food voucher? And a lot we don't see a lot of those people. You know what? God wants to do a mighty work in their lives but they just don't show up. They won't come out for it. It's too big a commitment to come to church on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night. And therefore, no mighty work takes place in their life. Can God work in their lives outside of the church? Sure, he can. But why do you want to make it hard for God? Uh, You know, uh, Lord, if you want to save me, you're going to have to chase me down. I'm, I'm, you know, I I know I can go to church. They told me they'd help me and all that, but uh, I don't don't want that. You're going to have to, you know, hit me over the head or do something like that. And, and, And people just don't show up where God can help them. He marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Fresno's a city that gets a bad rap, right? Lots of national... You know uh, jokes about Fresno. A few years ago on television, Carol Burnett had a mini series. I think it was called Fresno. It was a spoof on shows like Dallas and Dynasty, where set in Fresno. And they it was instead of raisin bran, they made bran raisin. And uh, it was just it was, I remember it because it was funny. But it was a spoof on Fresno. They didn't make it about San Francisco or Las Vegas. They made it about Fresno because Fresno's funny. Uh, in that way, remember the campaign, Fresno. Smile when you say that. Do you remember that billboard campaign? Yeah, that, they do stuff like that because people frown when they hear about Fresno, and, and it gets. And I, I think largely it gets a bad rap. Nazareth got a bad rap in the first century. The common adage was, you remember this from the Gospels? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Uh, and and here they have an opportunity. To change that, to put up billboards that say the Messiah came out of Nazareth, the miracle working, wonder working man, Jesus Christ, came out of Nazareth, puts them on the map. Instead, they were like, hey, we're not going to come out to you. If you come to synagogue, we're going to have to put up with you doing a reading because that's polite, but we would really like it if you would just leave and go about your business. Where did this man get these things? Jesus' wisdom and his works were things, as I said, beyond a carpenter with a questionable birth whose own family thought him to be insane. Jesus got them from his relationship to God, the Holy Spirit. He'd been born of the Spirit, baptized by the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. He was constantly led by the Spirit. Now, I've told you before, just to be clear, Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. He didn't quit being God to become a man and then become man or God again. That's a heresy. Jesus, when we see him in the gospels, he is fully God and fully man in a way that we can't comprehend. But though he was fully God, he subordinated his prerogatives of his deity to his father and he submitted to the leading and the filling and the guidance of God, the Holy Spirit so that he could model for us what it would be like to see a perfect spirit-filled man. Now we can never be that perfect spirit-filled man this side of eternity because we have a sin nature, because we struggle with the flesh in a way that Jesus did not, but nevertheless, we have Jesus as an example of what God can do through a man. No one had ever seen a man like Jesus before. The Holy Spirit certainly came upon believers in the Old Testament, but not until Jesus was there ever a man under His complete control. I mean, we see David, the you know the the human ancestor of Jesus, do amazing, mighty feats, killing Goliath, taking Jerusalem. I mean, the guy was fantastic. And then we see his many defeats as well. And so, no one had ever really seen anybody like Jesus before. He was altogether unique and wonderful. And what's interesting about that is that Jesus promises you and I that same Holy Spirit to fill us and lead us and guide us. And so do you see what the Holy Spirit can do through you? Jesus commissions his closest disciples to go out and perform similar works to those that he had been doing. He's showing us what's to come after he was ascended back into heaven because we know he's going to go on to tell us that we, his followers, will do greater works after he's gone through the power of the Holy Spirit. So this little episode here where he sends out the 12, it's a first fruit of the way he's going to send out multitudes of believers throughout the church age with his delegated authority with the Holy Spirit to do God's will. And so verse seven... He called the 12 to himself and began to send them out two by two, gave them power over unclean spirits. Do you suppose the disciples liked the pairings Jesus chose? It's human nature to complain, right? I could just see uh, somebody saying, hey, Lord, can I talk to you? Do I have to go with Peter? I'm afraid I'm going to get into a lot of trouble with Peter. Peter likes to, you know, and whatever and stuff. And, And, you know, but the Lord paired them up and he sent them out. You are bound to be paired up at times with people and in situations that you don't really like. Most always, it's something that the Lord has set up so that you can shine in a dark place so that you can grow in your walk with the Lord so that you can represent Christ in that situation. Sadly, with the freedoms that we have in our great nation, our default position is always to want to get out of every bad situation or situations that we deem less than perfect. So if I'm partnered with somebody I don't like, then I put in a transfer notice. If I am in some situation I don't like, I find another job or whatever it is. And I'm not saying that can't happen and that's always wrong. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of times we need to have the attitude that, all right, Lord, what do you want to accomplish in me and through me in this situation? You've put me here for a reason and I'd like to explore that for a while until you open up another door. Don't always be looking for a way out or what we would call a different pairing. Two by two was practical as much as it was spiritual. They'd be traveling and that was always dangerous. It's nice to have someone who's got your back in ministry. Mark emphasizes they were given power over demons. As we've pointed out before, there was no mention of demonic possession whatsoever in the entire Old Testament. Unless my math is faulty... The Old Testament spans about 4,000 years of human history, starting with the creation week. Then there are 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament. No demonic possessions for almost 5,000 years, then bam, it seems like everywhere Jesus went, there were dozens and hundreds of possessions, and some individuals were possessed by multiple demons, up to maybe 6,000, as we saw in one of our last studies. This tells me that demonic possession was a particular unique strategy that the devil adopted when Jesus Christ was on the earth. For thousands of years, he didn't bother to possess anybody, and then all of a sudden, Jesus comes along. You know why? Because he tried to stop Jesus from coming. That the whole history of the Old Testament is Satan trying to stop the Messiah from coming in one way or another. The whole episode with Moses and the little boat and all that, they're trying to kill the boy babies so that there can't be a deliverer. And Satan fails because of God's providence. Finally, the Messiah comes. And so I can see that Satan gets together with his lieutenants and generals and says, hey, what are we going to do now that he's here? And somebody raises his hand or wing, I guess, and says, I know. How about we possess people? Keep them busy. Hit them where it hurts. All right, let's try that. And so Jesus comes along and he says, oh, you're possessed. Now you're not. I uh, Get out of him. You're not going to stay in there. And they're like on the run. It's a silly strategy, but you know, what are you going to do? If you're the devil, you've got to do something. And so this is why I believe we don't see that many possessions today because it's not an effective strategy anymore. Can people be possessed? Sure. Are they possessed? Yes. But it is an ineffective strategy for the devil to go around just possessing people, and you know what? The things that he is doing are a lot more sinister and a lot more effective. And so quit being not, not you guys, but just in general the Christian community needs to quit being drawn back into a first-century understanding of the devil's strategy, because if you're still playing in the first century, he's going to wipe you out. He's way ahead of that century. No demonic possessions, and then Jesus, now Jesus says, hey, you guys, you 12 guys, you can do what I can do, casting out demons. Instead of Jesus going out alone against the demons, there were now 12 more. Verse 8, he commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And the instructions Jesus gave them about their clothing communicate traveling light because of the urgency of getting from place to place with their message. We ought to travel to heaven through this world as lightly as possible. That's gonna mean something different to everybody, but it's worth meditating upon. There's no standard of living for the Christian. There's, we can't say, hey, we should all make this much money and live this way. Uh, it's just not a biblical concept at all. There are uh, relatively poor Christians. There are relatively wealthy Christians. We all have to figure out within our calling how to live with a light touch on the world on our way to heaven so that we're not overencumbered. Since the coming of Jesus for his church is imminent, there's also an urgency in everything that we do. Uh, because we never know when the Lord is going to come for us. They didn't need money or food because they were to depend upon local hospitality. Verse 10, also he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. Travelers would be taken in by locals and shown hospitality. Now, on the one hand, I was gonna say, you know, we don't really understand this anymore, Uh, but on the other hand, we're not a village of 200 people either. I mean, when you see somebody strange in your neighborhood, you call the police. You're not, you don't go out and say, hey, how'd you like to spend the night? I don't recognize you. You're new to the neighborhood. Come on in, I'll kill the fatted calf and we'll have a party and then you can spend the night. Yeah, no, you make sure you've got bullets. Uh, and you know, I mean, it's a different world in which we live. We show hospitality differently. We meet people's needs differently. But in their culture, two guys would show up this is big news in a village of 300 people. Hey, where are you what are you guys doing here? Uh, what, and, and, and people would fight, in a sense, in a good sense, to be the house in which they showed them hospitality. The disciples were to be content with the first invitation, not holding out for or later switching to better accommodations. You ever, you ever gone to a hotel that looked better on the brochure? We, we were just down in San Bernardino for a funeral, and I'd stayed at the Best Western down there in Hospitality Lane before, but uh, it just didn't work out as well this time. Uh, they, had a, the, they had a toilet. Have you ever been in our, this is a real rabbit trouble, have you ever been in our nursery? There's a little tiny kid's bathroom. The toilet's about this high off the ground. It's the cutest thing. It's the, uh, I like it. It's the thing I like the most about our whole church is this little kid. I don't know why. It's just as cutest. Thing. I'd never seen anything like it before. This toilet at the Best Western wasn't that much bigger, and it was maybe only a foot off the ground. I thought, Man, this, what happened? Was there a special on nursery toilets or what, you know? And so uh, they were instructed, hey, whoever takes you in first, if you find out later that somebody has a guest house and they're, they're you know eating large and living large over there, you just stay where you are because this isn't about your comfort or about you bringing things to yourself. It's about the message, and we don't want to bring anything to slight the message. Verse 11, whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Devout Jews would always shake the dust off of their feet after they'd been in Gentile territory once they returned to Israel, symbolically saying that they hadn't picked up any defilement or uh, contamination from the Gentiles uh, and, and you that know, they were Jews and remained separate. For a Jew to do this in a Jewish city, that was saying the Jews there were acting like Gentiles, like people who were not part of God's chosen group. I mean, this is a, a pretty big insult to shake the dust off of your feet in a Jewish home or a Jewish city. Sodom and Gomorrah were Gentile cities that had very little of the word of God, but what they had was enough for God to judge them, which he did, First century Jews had the entire Old Testament. They had their Messiah physically on the scene. Plenty of proof it was really Him. Thus, the phrase they'll be held more accountable than the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, While we live in a post Christian culture, not everybody knows the Bible the way that uh, we used to when Sunday school was full and uh, the Bible was taught in schools and things like that. Nevertheless, we have a lot of knowledge of spiritual things. And that means that there's a greater judgment coming uh, upon uh, individuals who reject Jesus Christ in that light. And so that's what's being said here. Verse 12, so they went out and preached that people should repent. Don't lose sight of the mission. They went out with the power to heal, the power to cast out demons, but their mission was to preach repentance. As far as theologians go, you can't go too wrong with Charles Ryrie. Regarding what it means to repent, he wrote the following. He says, many understand the term repentance to mean turning from sin. This is not the biblical definition of repentance. In the Bible, the word repent means to change one's mind. The Bible also tells us that true repentance will result in a change of actions. Acts 26.20 declares that I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. The full biblical definition of repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. And so to repent with regards to salvation means to change your mind about Jesus Christ. We preach repentance and faith. If you are a Christian, or excuse me, if you're not a Christian, you need to repent of your sin. You need to change your mind about God, realize that He's your Savior, that you're a sinner. Turn away from that sin and produce works of righteousness having been filled with God the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed them. Now this is something new. This is the first mention of oil in Mark's gospel. It's a reference to olive oil which was often used medicinally. But it was also used symbolically to represent the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Prophets and priests and kings were anointed with oil to symbolize their need to depend upon the Holy Spirit. They would literally pour a jug of oil over their head and watch it drip down through their beard and over their clothes. We don't do this today because we have carpeted floors. Gene was telling me in between services because I brought up olive oil that there's a big thing going on in Italy right now because some Italian olive oil vendors are trying to pass off Regular olive oil as extra virgin olive oil. That's like a blasphemy in Italy. That's a capital crime. I just found out the other day that different oils are used for different purposes, so they burn at different temperatures. Did you know that? Of course, you knew that, yeah. Thanks for telling me. My quesadillas are coming out a lot better now. We still sometimes anoint people with oil when we pray for them, especially the sick, because the book of James indicates that we should do this. Whether we use oil or not, we recognize that we are dependent upon and submitted to the work of the Spirit. We're saying, hey, the Holy Spirit is the person uh, that we are depending upon and submitting to in this prayer. Sometimes the work is to heal. Oftentimes that work is to have us bring glory to God out of patiently enduring our suffering. Jesus commissioned the 12. After he rose from the dead in what we call the great commission, he commissioned every disciple to go proclaiming the word, making disciples and baptizing them. He also promised to be with us on that mission. And he fulfills that promise by the Holy Spirit living in us, coming upon us, filling us for the work of the ministry. And so the question again, do you see what the Holy Spirit can do through you? Non-believers are a lot like the people in Nazareth. They think of things that discredit you so that they don't have to think about the gospel that you're preaching. You're in good company when it comes to being used by God. Here's a passage from 1 Corinthians. Paul the Apostle speaking. He says, you see, you're calling brethren. So he's speaking to Christians about their calling. He says, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Well, thanks a lot, Paul. If I'm in that group, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, I I have a college education and I have this and I have that. But he says, yeah, not many. He says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put the wise to shame. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. So not only he's telling me that I am not wise and mighty and noble, he's saying I'm foolish and weak. And then it gets worse. He says, the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. The things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no flesh should glory in his presence. It seems like God goes out of his way to choose the person you would least choose to minister to somebody so that their mind can be blown by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so that they would say, where does this man Get this. Where does this come from, this anointing that is in this situation? We have it backwards. We still tend to think that the more we know and the more experience we have, the better we can serve the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. You should read the Word of God. You should study the Word of God. You should be ready to give an answer to everyone of the hope that is in you. You shouldn't be maturing and growing and studying and preparing and You know, we're not a bunch of spontaneous people who just sit around all the time and hope God's going to show up. What's being said here is that you shouldn't put any faith in any of that. You shouldn't put any confidence in your own abilities to study the word of God and put it together and understand things. You need to totally and completely depend upon the Holy Spirit who will use all of those things that are in your life but only when you are submitted to him so that God gets the glory. God is all about getting the glory through you when people look at you and say, man, you're, you're a knucklehead. You know how many times, I, I, I say this all the time, it's kind of funny, do you know how many times in my life I've been asked what seminary I went to? If I had a dollar for every time I was asked that question, I would have retired 10 years ago because it's crazy. And, and then it's always disappointing to people they get so disappointed when I say, I never went to any seminary. <laughs> Some people just, I can tell they feel sorry for me. <laughs> Other people just want to get away from me. Can you point me in the direction of someone who has gone to seminary, please? So. Yeah. Sure. It's crazy. And, and you have that in your life, too. You're not a pastor, but you don't need to be. You're called to minister to people. The work of the ministry is out there. We come here to be equipped to do the work of the ministry, which is out there. And the greatest thing that can happen to you is people would look at you and say, how is this man, how is this woman able to say this? Because then you'll say something and there'll be an authority to it. Not because of the inflection of your voice, but because what you say is the truth and it hits people in the heart and they go, wow, wow. Where is this coming from? It's coming from God. Because we depend upon Him, because we're filled with Him, He indwells us, because He comes upon us, because He wants to work through us. God has cast you in the role of being Christ like. That's what Christian means, Christ like. That's your role to be Christ like. Some say it's little Christ, it's the role of a lifetime as you depend upon the Lord in all the situations you find yourselves in. Amen?